Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the podcast, It Should Go Without Saying. I'm your host, Andrew Lewis, and we are talking English Premier League today with our resident English Premier League expert, Declan Kennedy. Good evening, Declan. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Uh, that's good. We are right in the middle of international break number two, which feels like it's going on for about six months. There's only two weeks. Some of that feeling of discontent that there's no football this week might come from the fact that, like Declan, I am a Liverpool fan. We can get straight into it. It's eight games into the Premier League season and the Liverpool Football Club are eight points in front of Manchester City, undefeated at the top of the table, having not dropped a point. What an amazing start to the season for the Reds. They've won 17 straight Premier League games going back to last season. Yeah, it's stupidly impressive statistic, really. And there's been some bumpy moments, but that's the sign of a good team, really. They have, and it. the funny thing, the thing worth noting, really, is that particularly this season, compared to last season, it's hard to identify an area of Liverpool's game that is necessarily better than it was last season, other than just their ability to win. Mm, yeah. That's... I mean, they, they did start the season last year with six straight wins and then managed to salvage a point at Stamford Bridge against Chelsea. And I think then their second lot of drop points was at home to Manchester City when, showing all due respect, uh, Manchester City came to Anfield for the point and got what they were after. But this year, I mean, it has been a reasonably easy run through the first eight games. Arsenal at home and Chelsea on the road were the two top six teams that they played. But Chelsea at Stanford Bridge is always a tough assignment. We'll get to Chelsea later. Mm. I mean, But uh, getting back to my point, I mean, other than I think probably Firmino seems clearly better so far this season than he was last season. Um, mm, Salah and Mane, they've, they come and go. They, they, they are excellent at times, and Mane certainly hit the ground running. Uh, Salah has more goal involvements through eight games of the Premier League season and through this stage of the season up to the second FIFA break than he has in either of his first two seasons at Liverpool. So despite the fact that he doesn't look like he's setting the world on fire, statistically he's having a very good start to the season. Maybe maybe the attack is working better than it was last season. It it feels like it possibly is somehow. We feel maybe a little bit more patient at times going forward than we were last season. Yeah, I'm not as... This is something that started last season when I was watching games where where if we didn't score after 20 or 30 minutes in previous years, you would start to get worried. You would start to think that the goal was coming up the other end against the run of play. I don't get so worried about that anymore as a Liverpool fan because I feel like we're going to land the first punch. But also, if we don't score first, that we'll we'll get it back. Yeah, and seem to have an ability to switch it on fairly quickly when we have to. You know, the the Champions League game against uh, Salzburg was a good example of that. Losing that big lead and then just switching it on to get the goal that we needed at the end it seemed was, fairly easy to do. It was a very odd game in terms of momentum shifts. Sort of felt like an old-fashioned Liverpool game from two or three years ago, if you can call that old-fashioned, where <laughs> the the back four would sort of get in a bit of bit of bother and start shipping goals and the momentum be lost. But 
the vital goal was gotten to make it 4-3 and Liverpool are still in a comfortable position in that group with uh, coming up in this little batch of games, back-to-back home and away games against Genk, where really they should be getting six points. Um, Do you see something looming as the potential hurdle for Liverpool to jump over, a potential roadblock that might come out of the next few games? Obviously, the next few games are a lot tougher. They've got Manchester United first up at Old Trafford, who always tend to get up for Liverpool. That would give, if Liverpool won that game, that would give them the record equaling 18 straight wins in the Premier League. And before the November international break, they've also got Tottenham and Manchester City. So it does seem like a tougher bunch of games coming up. Yeah, and the thing is that Manchester United, Manchester City will be definitely counting on us maybe dropping some points soon if they want the title race to be a bit, to be more interesting. But in terms of playing United and Tottenham in the next couple of games, it's probably the best time you could possibly have to play both of those sides. Yeah, well, we've got those two teams on the rundown, so we'll, we'll get to those. Liverpool's uh, form, it was funny. Uh, in Jurgen Klopp's first full season in charge at Liverpool, Liverpool's record against the top six was excellent. And in his second season, it was as well. Last year was probably... It was the worst, uh, it felt at least like the worst points production against the, the other big six clubs. We only got a point against Manchester City. Uh, we dropped points against Chelsea and Manchester United and Arsenal. Mm. But to balance that out, more than balance it out, we started really banking three points against the lesser teams pretty much all the time. If so far, you know, obviously full points so far this season to games against those big six clubs where the job job was done. And Chelsea did uh, absolutely come hard in the last half hour of that game at Stamford Bridge. Yeah, it definitely feels like that's the difference between what makes this Liverpool side proper title contenders last season and this season as well, is that ability to bank points against smaller the smaller clubs, which is always what has held us back. Yeah, and once and, they get through this... Yep. Oh, I was just about to say, and City... Um, City seem to be doing the opposite. I think it's another point to point out about City as we get to them, that uh, they have not had the most difficult first eight weeks of their uh, schedule either. I think they've played Tottenham out of the the big six clubs, and that's it, for whom they could not beat. But their losses have been at Norwich, who are currently, despite being entertaining, uh, are down towards the bottom, and uh, Wolves, where it certainly seemed like it was what I like to call the kitchen sink game. It was a game where Wolves came to the Etihad and just thought, well, we've got to turn our season around. We've just got to have these three points. And uh, despite flubbing some opportunities early, they got rewarded late and were able to end up with a reasonably comfortable 2-0 victory. Did Manchester City put themselves behind the eight ball in the in the summer transfer window by not signing a central defender? I The, the issue with it is that forces them to play Fernandinho out of position. And that just really causes problems for their whole system. He's such a linchpin for them when he plays in that position that Rodri is playing in at the moment. And he also he just seems to be getting like from watching the Wolves game, he seemed he just seemed to be getting overwhelmed. Yeah. Would it be a situation where they might be better off swapping Rodri and Fernandinho and having Rodri try and fill in it 
at cent- in central defence and Fernandinho maintain his natural position? Um, well, I, I don't know if um, I, I don't know if Rodri can play in centre back necessarily, but I, I think it's the it's, it's the situation where you have to trust what you ha- what you have in your squad. There are plenty of cent- you know centre backs that are available, even if they're not necessarily up to scratch with the rest of the team. I think it's just about always better having someone playing in their natural position than moving a key player out of his own natural position. It just seems bizarre, but that is something that Pep Guardiola has, is that he he doesn't like playing players that he doesn't have 100% trust in, does he? No, I mean, it cops the same as well. I feel like if he has trust in you, you'll probably get thrown in before some other people would think you're ready. I mean, Trent Alexander-Arnold made his Premier League debut at Old Trafford against Manchester United. But mm. with others, will you think now it might be an opportunity for you to come in? I mean, last year there was probably an opportunity in the Champions League against Bayern Munich when you had Matip and Gomez and Lovren. Or I think you had certainly Lovren and Gomez hurt and Van Dijk suspended. He chose not to go with youth but to move Fabinho back to centre-back and that worked well on a couple of occasions. The difference there is that Fabinho has played in and around the defence for a big portion of his career when he was playing at Monaco. He played mostly at right-back and centre-back until, I think, his last season there. Mm, but, he's also he's also yeah. played a lot less of his career. I mean, Fernandinho is a lot older than Fabinho is, so... Yeah, that's true. I just feel like Manchester City, surely not just the fact that they lost company, but... John Stones and Laporte have both shown that they're not always the most durable players. And Otamendi has never been... It always seems to me that when they've gone through periods where they've had to really rely on Otamendi, have also coincided with the periods where City have struggled. And somehow he's managed to have survived in the team and in the squad and not been moved on. So... I feel like this is a situation that they could have reasonably foreseen, maybe not to the same severity with Laporte out, I think, till the new year and Stone's still out for a little while longer. But mm. certainly one where they th- were... And there obviously was some talk about them trying to make some signings, which is another thing that's hard to believe. It's hard to believe in this day and age that City could identify a target and then not be able to make the signing. Well, I th- maybe part of, part of the issue might be that you know, it, for years now, City have been regularly throwing fifty million at centre backs most seasons, and nothing's stuck really. And I mean, Laporte, Laporte is obviously their number one, and he he's been a huge contributor to their two recent titles. But Stones was not starting to at the end of last season. That was, company was starting ahead of him, and. He has been in and out of the side at other times, and Otamendi is essentially a squad player. So, oh, and you've got they spent large amounts of money on Mangala before that as well, who has disappeared off the face of the earth. I'm surprised they haven't decided to maybe throw Kyle Walker into central defence. Yeah, that's something I've heard people talk about. And Walker it... wasn't in the English squad for this FIFA break, so maybe. Pep will have the opportunity to make some adjustments on the training ground during this time and be able to utilise Walker there so he can move Ferdinandinho back into uh, central midfield. But still, Walker and Otamendi, you'd feel like, as a central defensive pairing at this stage in their careers would be a pairing you could get at. You'd you'd think so. And it's 
it's funny to say it because as much criticism as Manchester City get for just dipping into the transfer window, transfer market every single time there's any problem, it's like it's all they can do. I think in this situation, there's no glaring resolution in their like way to solve the problem in their squad currently. But the transfer window is a long way away. It is, and some of the certainly some of their fitness issues will be solved by the time the transfer window comes around. So then they need someone now. They don't necessarily need someone in January. I, I think they still do because it's not a situation that's going to stop coming up. I agree. And, and City, amongst other clubs, have behaved in a way where they would think to themselves, even if they brought someone in and you think if everyone's fit, you've got too many players, then someone will end up not getting opportunities, and that's the player who becomes surplus to, re- to requirements. And as you were saying, they've, they've signed some central defenders over the last three or four years who haven't made themselves indispensable. And with the inflated market, you'd be able to get some return on investment for some players that you, saw, you bought maybe three years ago. I mean, you look at the John Stone signing. What was he, $48 million, I think, in 2017 or 2018? Oh, around about that, yeah. Yeah. And you look at the Harry Maguire signing, which is eighty-five million. And it's just those are pretty, they're two pretty comparable players in terms of their records. Yeah, and that's one of the issues with the current market is that with such a huge premium on players, it's especially with a defender like that. If if a player doesn't perform, it's very hard to warrant selling them because you're not going to make that back. Yeah, the you're right. Another team who are having not only central defensive woes, but certainly woes all over the pitch are Tottenham. In the Champions League, they shipped seven against Bayern Munich at Tottenham. Mm. Then one of the most horrific injuries you could ever see to a goalkeeper. Lloris was struggling before it happened, but he doesn't deal with the doesn't deal with the ball coming in, and literally adds injury to insult. The ball the ball gets cleaned up and. They find themselves in a huge hole against Brighton, who aren't world beaters. Do you see a way forward for Tottenham? Is this sort of the end of the road for the Pochettino era at Tottenham? Have they sort of expended all the improvement they can make under this manager? It's um, it's difficult, isn't it? It's um, it's hard to know what's actually gone wrong there. But uh, if you look at the the squad that if you compare, for instance, Jurgen Klopp to Pochettino, who have been managing Liverpool and Tottenham for similar amounts of time and have had comparable improvements to the performances on the pitch, the uh, there's a hell of a lot more of the squad that Pochettino took over left compared to the Liverpool side. Yeah, because uh, they've still got they've still got some of the players they signed with the Gareth Bale money, guys like Ericsson and Eric Lamella. They would have added, I think, Deli Ali at about the same stage. I think Son might predate Pochettino or very early on in the Pochettino reign when they signed Son. Mm. And of Erald, Vertonghen, uh, Danny Rose is still there. Yes, I mean, and... we keep coming back to Liverpool, but they've turned over the, he's turned over the squad where there's probably six or seven guys who are now there who were there in 2015, but Tottenham have 10, 11, 12 guys. And you also have to think that the standout players in that Tottenham squad have been there a while and not probably seen the success that they would like to have seen 
which is and they're in a strange situation because similar to what Arsenal had you know ten years ago ish, they've got a lot of players that are just running out their contracts at the moment. Yeah, it's always a that's always a bit of a uh, a warning, isn't it, for a club when you've got guys who are happy to get to the point. I mean, Ericsson can sign anywhere in January if he doesn't sign a contract with Tottenham before then. And you get to that point and you think, well, if I sign the Bosman, I get a big fat contract. I make the money. The club doesn't make the money in terms of a transfer, signing bonus, that sort of thing. So, I mean, save the first, save mm. the big three, four, five clubs. Ericsson's going to be able to pretty much go wherever he wants. Yeah, and it's going to cause problems for Tottenham as it, as because it, they can't reinvest that way. Because mm. you you left empty-handed. Yeah. On the other hand, I think it might do them some favors because I think part of their problem is that they don't really have a good idea of how they want their midfield and their forward line to look. Other than if everybody's hit, they want Harry Kane is at the front by himself, either with men to the side or men in just in behind, but he leads the line. And they want, at the base of midfield, they want Ndombele because they've just made that investment. But other than that, the other four forward slash midfield positions, that it's it's sort of a mess. They've got Ericsson, they've got Ali, they've got Lamella, they've got Lucas Mora, they've got all these players and they don't really have much of a pecking order that's obvious in terms of who they want to play and what system they want to play going forward with the ball. Yeah, and it doesn't leave a whole lot of room for cohesion or it's a very odd situation to be in. It almost seems to me like they've got I mean, I think it'll work itself out because I think that's the way that club football goes is someone will smell what's happening at Tottenham and Pochettino's obviously a sought after manager and they'll come in for him and the move will be made and then there'll be a change. But Mm. They normally, obviously, Klopp happened in October when 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 they made that change. Manchester United last year made the change in November. Actually, they might have made it later than I don't know if it was a FIFA break, but they they made it quite late in the season. There oh. wasn't a lot of action or change in January for Manchester United because it was simply too late for the manager to think to get a look at everyone to decide. Here's someone I really don't want. Here's someone who I really want to keep. He's got to then go through the next six months and get hmm. an idea. And by that time for Manchester United, you know, things had started going downhill again. So maybe it would have been better for Tottenham to have you know, sort of pulled the cord in this break, giving the new manager a good 10 weeks to look at players across three competitions so he could uh, at le- very least identify an area of need. I think it would, it would probably be unfair on Pochettino for him to be fired for this small run of... It is realistically a, a fairly small run of poor form. Oh, and I, it, I, yep. And it might mark the beginning of a bit of a downturn, but it might not. And there's no denying that Pochettino is probably going to be leaving the club at the end of this season. But Look, I agree uh, that it would be unfair on him. And but I, but I do think that they have had their little downturns before, but it's probably how they're losing at the moment that's the real worry. I mean, in the normal course of events, a team like Tottenham should never lose, should never concede seven goals in a game. No, that's true. Um, I think well, there'll probably be actually a better idea of what's happening after the 
international break, to be honest, is where form goes when they back, get back into the swing of things, having a little, having had a little break. If anything, the the break might have come at a at a good time. Yes, and Tottenham have got Watford first up after the international break, and that's probably a pretty good team to get. They have been mm. uninspiring. Well, but I think what we what we predicted before the season was going to happen to Burnley is actually happening to Watford. They've scored four goals in eight games and have looked terrible. Yeah, they've been they have been pretty woeful. I mean, not in the same way that we would have expected Burnley to be struggling, but yeah, it's been. Completely unexpected, that's for sure. Yeah, and but, Burnley are seventh and three points ahead of <laughs> Manchester United. Yeah. Well, uh, the Manchester United thing is a whole other crazy thing. I mean, they're only a point ahead of Newcastle. <laughs> and, and just lost to them. We will get to Manchester yeah. United before <laughs> we finish up. So the top four at the moment is the two teams we thought that we thought were going to be first and second in some order at the start of the season, Liverpool and Manchester City. We also thought that Arsenal were probably going to finish third, and they're currently third. The team that's fourth is Leicester City, and I saw them... I've seen their last couple of games. They were very good against Tottenham. There was obviously a huge sliding doors moment in that game with the VAR, but they looked like they were going to score that second goal for a bit of a time before that Tottenham goal was disallowed, and then obviously did afterwards. and then was certainly impressive at Anfield against Liverpool without uh, really having anything to show for it. This is, a, at the very least, a very good starting eleven that Leicester have collected. They've got some handy players on the bench, and they look really, really solid in a year where it does look like there is a chance you could sneak into the top four. It, it definitely, definitely does seem like there's a chance, doesn't it? Um, the And the good thing is it's a very young side as well, which could mean one of two things it could mean that they might go on to get better or they might more likely is that they'll get sort of handicapped by transfers and stuff a bit in the next few years but you're right but the current market works for them i mean you look at someone like madison and you think in the normal course of events you'd be thinking the big clubs would be just rubbing their hands together and preparing bids for this guy uh, especially the teams that need re- rejuvenation of their midfields uh, in the big six teams like Chelsea, if I mean, if they're obviously uh, under a transfer ban at the moment, Arsenal need midfielders, Manchester United need midfielders. But the mar- the way the market is now, you'd be looking at almost a hundred million pounds to get Madison out of Leicester at the moment. Definitely so, in that ballpark, yeah. Yeah, so maybe that will stop most teams from just pulling the trigger on that money and he gets to stay at Leicester a little bit longer. Uh, I'd be really, really enthused and encouraged if I was a Leicester City fan and they're not that far removed from the ultimate success. It's definitely a, a positive period, isn't it? And it's probably what they would have wanted after having won the league was to would have been to push on like this, but it didn't seem like it was going to happen. But Brendan Rodgers deserves a lot of credit for rejuvenating a Leicester team that had gotten quite stale under Claude Puel. They went through a few managers there after they got rid of Ranieri, mm. but they did. They never. They never really collapsed. They were never really in a relegation battle at any stage. So they were always competitive most of the times in the top ten. And you know they're fourth now, and they've still got the Harry Maguire money. So they're in a situation where, come January, if 
someone becomes available, they can cash in some of their chips and maybe make a run and think, well, we can really, really have a crack at, at Champions League football in 2021. It would be... Uh, it's definitely very possible. I don't really even know where in their squad they would need to improve either. That's the impressive thing. There's not it doesn't a, seem like, a lot of weaknesses. It doesn't seem like they've missed... Harry Maguire really at all. They've conceded seven goals so far in eight games in the Premier League, and the only team that's conceded less is Liverpool. They've scored 14 in eight games, which is entirely respectable. It's close enough to two goals a game. So they're scoring, and they're also defending really well. So, I mean, who knows what would happen if, if Jamie Vardy went down, but I feel like they'd be able to find a way to eke out results. But they don't look like they're really leaking at the back. I think that was a worry after they sold Maguire for that much money so late in the transfer window is they wouldn't really have the opportunity to deal with that situation until January. Uh, yeah, they, they they did have like a decent defence around him though, which is, I think maybe people got a bit carried away. By... I mean, that could sometimes happen. He wouldn't be the first player who's been sold for more than he's worth because of the system he was playing in. Mm. And um, the, the really impressive thing to me about Leicester is that they're scoring goals from midfield as well, which is always a good sign. I mean, the Madison winner against Tottenham was absolutely world class. Yeah, yeah, and they, uh, they've got goals. Most a lot, most of their midfield players have goals in them. Indeedy's scored a couple, I think. Um, Yuri Tielemans always has a goal in him. He's a very good player. It's an exciting team to watch. And they've got guys like Perez and Demarai Gray who aren't getting a regular go in the starting 11. So it's not like they're, it's just their starting 11 that's carried them through. They do have some depth. Definitely. So it'll be interesting. I think, I think it'll be a very interesting, we've got 30 games left obviously in the Premier League, but it'll be very interesting if Leicester are here, say in the March international break and they're still in the top four with at least three of the big six looking in. Um, that will make things very interesting. Another interesting team to go back to the top six is Chelsea. I find them fascinating because we've become very accustomed to Chelsea doing things the Chelsea way, and they're sort of succeeding this season by not being that Chelsea in terms of how they've built their squad through necessity, through you know a transfer ban, but it's mm. this this collection of talent that they've bought over such a long period of time. The rainy day has come and they've had to rely on it and it has delivered. Yeah. it Honestly, to me, it has a feeling kind of similar to their first sort of real big spell of success where they, they had a group of players who were all fairly young and saw through that big period of success that Chelsea had in the second half of the two thousands that, with players like Lampard and Terry and etc. getting a bit older, they went more for kind of they moved to a strategy that was kind of more similar to what Manchester City have been doing in that time. But the the core success that Chelsea the core thing that Chelsea built that success off was a core group of players that they made big signings that would be additions to that group of you know Lampard, Terry, Joe Cole. And it feels a bit more like that, like these the the current group of you know, Mason Mounts and Tammy Abrahams. If they can keep them in that squad for a long time and build a squad around them, 
maybe they could find some success again. Tammy Abraham's been a, a revelation. I mean, eight goals through his first eight games, currently leading the golden boot with Sergio Aguero. You saw, you would have seen a lot of him over the last couple of years. Did you see this coming from him as he was playing for lesser clubs? Uh, like the, especially his spell at Villa, there's like no denying he is a very clinical goal scorer. He and people were very quick to jump on him after a couple of you know a couple of early failures this season and he's just kept he's just been doing he he doesn't he hasn't done any, had to do anything too flashy has he he just puts the ball in the back of the net yeah i think if you were a chelsea fan you might have thought after the super cup where he was the guy who had the penalty save which meant they lost the match Young guy, he might take a while to bounce back from this and he might go in a bit of funk, but he just topped straight back on and just kept mm. scoring. So that's also a really encouraging sign. Yeah, he, he faced a lot of criticism for that miss as well and he just took it in his stride. It's really impressive. And he he makes he makes football seem quite simple, really. Mm. And the best players often do. Mm. There's plenty of players at big clubs who try to make try to make football look a lot more difficult than it needs to be so for for a, a player of his talent just to make it look simple and, and direct and things like that and produce i think gives you the impression that there's not much that can go wrong moving forward and now that he's at the level and he's discovering that he belongs at the level he's not going anywhere after that so he's going to be you know leading the line for chelsea probably for the next decade well, and the exciting thing about that, I think, for Chelsea fans would be that he's actually linking up really well with some of the other young players around him. You know, he's been, he's seems to have a pretty good connection on the pitch with um, Mason Mount, and of course he's played with uh, Callum Hudson-Odoi for a long, long time as well. So it looks like I mean, lots to be excited about if you're a Chelsea fan. They uh, they do at the moment have one glaring weakness, which seems to be their ability to defend from set pieces, they're conceding a huge percentage of their goals from set pieces. But that's usually the sort of thing that as long, you have a defense that will work through those issues on the training track and just get better at, at that. It's, it's yeah. more of a reflection of just a young, inexperienced side who haven't played a lot together. Well, if you were looking a few years ago, we were, we were having a very similar issue when we were in Liverpool. So, and it's certainly not really the case anymore. Absolutely. We skipped over them before. Just going back to Arsenal, they're currently third on the table. They've only lost one game, which was at Anfield. Amazingly, they've won four games, drawn three, lost one. They have a goal difference of plus two. I feel like they haven't really convinced anyone yet, and for that reason, they're sort of not getting a lot of attention. It was interesting because um, Unai Emery has been coming under, under a lot of criticism from Arsenal fans so far this season. And it's it's strange because you know they're only a point behind City, but they're also you know only a game behind eighth place. So it's I I feel like their their problems do lie in their midfield, don't they? It's and maybe a, there's a feeling of a lack of a lack of leadership in the team. I think which isn't yeah. very it's not necessarily quantifiable, is it? No, but I mean, other than their forwards, other than obviously Aubameyang and to a lesser extent, lesser extent Lacazette and Pepe, it's hard to 
really reel off the names playing for us at the moment, the guys who you watch and you just draw your mm. attention to them. So in that sort of respect, in terms of a leadership role, they they are struggling. I think I think the Liverpool oh, sorry, I think the Arsenal fans are obviously itching for some success and success in the same sort of way that's that is happening for Liverpool at the moment that's happened to Manchester City, Chelsea not not so you know, not too long ago. But Emery has obviously been hamstrung by financial considerations and it's hard to see those being solved unless Arsenal qualify for the Champions League. You would expect them to qualify this season, I would I would think, wouldn't you? But definitely well, I think they're clearly I think they're clearly better than Manchester United and they're four points clear of Tottenham at the moment. Now, obviously a whole and and they only those two teams have already played once this season. So there's obviously a whole bunch of uh, a whole bunch of games still to play. But oh. Leicester are right behind them. You feel like Chelsea are getting better all the time. I can understand why I can understand this pressure coming towards Emery and and Arsenal generally from sort of all directions. They've got to they've got to stay up. And another thing that they were very poor at in Wenger's last few years and hasn't improved necessarily just yet is their is their ability to get wins against the other top six clubs. And they haven't quite done that this season yet. They drew with Tottenham. They lost to Liverpool. So mm, I, I, they need that breakthrough I think, win. I think what would worry, worry them, especially Arsenal fans, is that you know, Leicester and Chelsea are teams with an incredible amount of drive behind them. Even if the squad, player for player, the talent is more or less even. There feels like there's a lot more drive in the in the Leicester and Chelsea sides than what Arsenal have to offer, which is essentially what's going to put you over the line towards that back end of the season, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, Chelsea are young and talented, and Leicester certainly have an edge to them, and I think we saw a little bit of that in their last couple of appearances. They're not afraid to commit a foul. Tottenham have been up for a long time, and I think a lot of us think that with the amount of talent they have, if they can just sort of right the ship and get a couple of wins, they'll be back on their way. So I think there's teams coming for that third spot. So I want to, I want to, you know, say nice things about Arsenal and be enthused. But other than that front three, it's hard to really identify that this is the really encouraging thing about this team going forward. It, that, that's definitely the case. It's a, it's a strange team, and it feels like it needs much more of an overhaul than what's really possible for that club at the moment. Mm-hmm. Without a, either a deliberate injection of funds, or which is hard to do nowadays if you're not generating the revenue, or a Champions League berth. So I, I, the drive should be there. They've got absolutely everything to play for. They're, mm. they're one point off. They're one point off City. So it's and and City have lost two games already, and the only team in the league other than Liverpool to have not lost two games is Arsenal. But the goal difference does give you an indication that they just they don't appear to be great at anything. Yeah, that's definitely the case. I I, yeah. I think it's very difficult for those forwards as well to achieve much with a midfield that almost seems to lack inspiration at times. And I mean. I mean, that's the frustrating thing for Arsenal, from my point of view, is Emery continues to show just a complete inability or unwillingness to find a way to get 
to use Ozil to unlock something about that team. And you've either got to cash in, move him, or or try something with him. And if you're going to play a 4-3-3, then maybe just try him as a number eight or with, with maybe two holding midfielders. So something, some sort of way. Maybe, you know, Ozil behind that front three, you should be able to find goals and find chances. But it's not that it's not working. It's that it's not attempted. Yeah, it's a it's a really quite confusing situation, and possibly the reason he hasn't been cashed in on is that there hasn't been an opportunity to get a return on the investment they made on on the investment they've put into him. Which for a club that like Arsenal that is struggling to bring in a whole lot of revenue might be I mean, an issue. I mean, you're right, but at the moment he's not bringing anything in, and it's it frustrates me because. At, he's 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 he hasn't doesn't have any value doing what he's doing now. He's not he he's only valuable to Arsenal if they play him, or if they sell him for what they can get for him. If he's sitting on the bench, or worse, not even in the squad, he is of nil value. Yeah, it's definitely um whether it's a problem with the management or the ownership, it's hard to know because you feel like Emery must have made efforts to sell him. Mm. So whether it is that. The ownership don't want to do that until there's a bid that they feel meets their expectations. Yeah, but it's a law. It's diminishing returns. The longer they wait, the longer yeah. they don't play, and the less they're going to get from him. It's not going to go back up. Well, uh, you get to the point where he'll just be running down his contract, which he is, and yeah, pretty soon they won't get anything for him. And uh, yeah, it, it seems to be that mm, yeah, they've not been the best run club for quite a while now, and it's. I feel like they get a free pass because they haven't been as poorly run as some other clubs. Some other clubs at times. But, yeah, they really haven't made, you know, haven't really been, had those good transfer windows back to back. There was a period there where they were making one, one maybe one good signing a season and and that was fine. And it looks but like they they've tried to do something this this summer, but still... It just maybe it's not maybe we're not giving them enough time, but I can understand why Arsenal fans are frustrated. They haven't necessarily made the smartest transfers in the past as well. They've brought in players that are you know, on the that aren't you. You want to ideally be bringing players as they hit their peak or before they hit their peak, and I feel like that's not something that Arsenal have typically done in the last five years or so. Like the signing of Alexis Sanchez was. It was a, a, it's big money, and he was a fantastic player for them, but they you feel like it, it's not a signing that is building towards a future. No, that felt like a signing, like we're one piece away. We just need someone to get us over the top. And then was he there for two, two and a half seasons? They turned him into McTarian, and now McTarian's gone. So sort of nothing to, yeah, nothing was, to show for that. Ozil's a similar signing, to be honest. He, you know, he made his name at Real Madrid. Yeah, mm. uh, they seem to have. They've made a lot of signings from big, big clubs, and it's it's not always the best way to go about things. You have to ask yourself if a big club wants to sell up someone. What's the what's the reason? Because if there were any sort of any value, the big clubs would be happy for them just to sort of store them, mm. and keep them until they become useful. There's many, many examples of of that happening. But Arsenal seem to sign these players for big clubs after the big clubs have decided, well, we're happy for them to leave. 
Yeah. Well, yeah, Sanchez is a really good example of that. Uh, yeah. I know it's as well, yeah. Mm. It's... So, so moving on from Arsenal, four points from six games and it looked like the good old Europa League curse was attacking Wolves. Back-to-back wins and they're up to 11th and looking a lot better. Do you think do you think it was a case of just having a bad start to the season or is this going to be the story of Wolves' season where they're going to be up and down around mid-table? It's difficult to know so early, isn't it? But it, it could very easily be that they've just had a rough start. But I don't know, it wouldn't be surprising to see a side like Wolves drop off a little bit in their second season in the Premier League. It, it, what it appears they haven't lost is their ability to be a really tough team against the very good sides. I mean, they've a win against Manchester City already this season. They played well against them last season. And that augurs well for the, the other competitions as well. I mean, Wolves made the semi-finals of the FA Cup last year. Obviously, they're in the Europa League this year and have made a, a reasonable start to that competition. So it's a lot more competitive in that area of the table than it was last season when you consider obviously we've talked about Leicester Crystal Palace have 14 points after eight games Burnley as surprising everyone West Ham again look like they could be about to take a next step and really compete for European football so that that middle part of the table that that group of six or seven teams just aside from the top six again looks really competitive and Wolves, regardless of how they're going, might have their work cut out for them. I think they will. I think just about every team in the Premier League is going to have their work cut out for them this season. It's. I think it's a very competitive... It's going to be a very competitive season all over. It feels very like a very even playing field at the moment. Well, I mean, you're right, and then you think about it, and there is a team eight points clear after eight games. So. <laughs> that too. Yeah, that's, um, but overall... So we've we've saved the best to last, and by by the best, I mean sort of reveling in another team's misfortune as a Liverpool fan, and that's Manchester United. I, I'm going to venture some thoughts here that might be overly fair to Manchester United, considering that is, I think they possibly, I think they undoubtedly made one mistake in the transfer window, and that is letting Lukaku and Sanchez leave without having some sort of even if it was 75% uh, replacement in in that area of the pitch. So that has created problems because they basically just got Rashford and he gets hurt and they're left down to Mason Greenwood, who is really young. But other than that, other than that, obviously that's created some problems. They They have nine goals in eight games and four of them came on opening day. But other than that, isn't this sort of what we expected Manchester United to be like this season? Uh, I didn't expect them to be this bad, but now that it's happening, it's not surprising at all. The the glaring thing is just like the incredible amount of pressure that is on very young players. And while that's something that obviously Manchester United have done in the past, even with that class of 98, it they always had other players that could take the pressure off them. Your Beckhams and Skulls and etc. More experienced players. So I, I don't... No, it's just it feels like yeah, letting Lukaku and Sanchez go without any kind of replacement is a definitely a mistake, isn't it? Because it's it's one thing to put put your trust in youth, but to rely entirely upon it is 
Look, they undoubtedly. It feels like yep. it lacks foresight. Thought they undoubtedly have some some good young players, and the players they brought in. I think there's been a lot of criticism about in previous uh, summer transfer windows is about Manchester bringing players in and them not working out. They brought Maguire and, and Juan Basaka into that defence. They've considered eight goals in eight games, so only Liverpool, Leicester City and Sheffield United have conceded fewer goals through eight games. So they have a better defensive record in terms of goals get conceded than Manchester City. Mm. Uh, Daniel James has looked good. So the players they brought in, I think, have at, le- at the very least met expectation and, and possibly exceeded it. But again, a bit of the, bit, bit the same as Arsenal. I don't know who the leader is on that team. And that's actually a problem they've had for a little while when you consider that yeah. guys like Ashley Young have been carrying the armband. I mean, that's that's not getting the job done. Yeah, well, the only obvious leader on, in the team is, is Paul Pogba. But he seems to be... You know, destructive chaos in terms of leadership. <laughs> yeah, it it feels like all he can really do is lead by example. In that he is a fantastic footballer. Whereas you want you really want someone who can lead by example in more ways than that, don't you? You do, and and again, he's a player who seems to get injured quite a bit. You need someone who's going to be there winning week in and week out. You need to have a leader who is playing essentially the same position all the time. And I don't know if Manchester United ever come to grips with exactly where the best place to play Pogba is, or if they have, then they've gone and played him out of position quite a bit, either at the, in a mid mid holding midfield two or. Yeah. It's, I, I think it's, it's blatantly obvious where he should be, where he should be played and how he should be played. It's, it's got to do with their lack of planning in the transfer market and that, they haven't signed players. They haven't signed midfielders, taking into consideration a plan of where they want to play Pogba. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think the two guys you need to build that team around are, are Pogba and Rashford. Not suggesting that you shouldn't have you know depth and the ability to plug guys in if Rashford's unavailable to players. A team like Manchester United should always be trying to compete on all fronts. So there are opportunities in cup competitions and for other guys. To get a game, they'll get minutes. But I would feel like you should have Pogba as, as a number eight and Rashford leading the line and sort of build the team around that. And that lends itself to a 4-3-3. You've got some good wide players in and around the setup, like Martial and Lingard. Not world beaters by any stretch of the imagination, but that's sort of not where Manchester United are right now. But where Manchester United are right now is after the Newcastle game, the... Ah, Manchester United in a relegation battle story start popping up, and that's that's sort of ridiculous. But they've had seventeen points from their last seventeen Premier League games. A point a game is relegation territory. Yeah, it's I mean, well, they're two points outside the relegation zone. It's not a stable position to be in. No, no, it isn't. The team that is in the relegation zone is Everton, who have dropped four in a row. So that's mm. that again makes part of this Liverpool fan's heart very happy. So, have you got any uh, predictions for the next little part of the Premier League, say, between now and Christmas? Sort of what's going to happen in the next, say, 10, 11 games in the Premier League? What can you see changing? What can you see happening? I think in terms of the relegation situation, I think we'll obviously get a better idea of there's a big block of teams that are in threat of getting themselves into a relegation battle this season and 
it's going to be interesting to see which in the next I think in the next five or six games we'll have a much better idea of which teams are going to struggle. I can't imagine Everton are going to struggle for too much longer. You suggest that where they are at the moment is more teething problems than anything else? I I, I don't think they're going to finish any higher than mid-table. In fact, they might well be in a relegation scrap all season, but I, I, I can't see them actually getting relegated. It doesn't seem doesn't seem likely. But also, I think there's a very good chance that Marco Silva is fired. Yeah, it does seem like their problems relate to scoring. They've got six goals in eight games, so... Well, it was the same thing last season. They didn't create chances from inside the penalty area at all, really. A huge percentage of their shots on goal came from outside the box, and it's not a sustainable way of no, playing. It's, no, it's not. Yeah, I think I think obviously there's a lot to, a long way to go in the relegation battle. I think the only thing we can be sure of is that uh, Watford are in quite a lot of trouble. Yeah, well... I mean, they're already a full game behind Norwich in 19th, so... Eight games without a win is certainly a stressful situation to be in. Mm. And it's where, the, I think, the, the play, the, when the players would be starting to get very, very concerned as well. And to be in that situation so early in the season is... I mean, the, not... nature, of, the nature of the 8-0 loss to City, you know, 5-0 down after 17, 18 minutes, you just you worry about have the players sort of resign themselves to what's about to happen. It seems a very long way out to have come to that mindset. It it felt that game felt more like one of those games you get you had last season in April that involved teams like Fulham and Huddersfield who were relegated a long way out, where the players are just going through the motions. Mm. Yeah, to be having performances like that so early in the season is it's concerning, isn't it? And it is final question: Are Newcastle staying up? Um. They've surprised me in how well they've played in some games, but they've also been just woeful at times. Like their loss against Leicester was embarrassing. So it's hard to know. Some of the new signings have been quite impressive there. Um, I take uh, you're not talking about Andy Carroll. <laughs> uh, he was actually quite good against United. I thought. I thought it was he. He was very impressive, and he was important defensively for them as well. Having that extra big man in the box for defending set pieces is a really useful it's a very useful thing to have and also the experience as well because Joe Linton doesn't quite seem up to it yet he but does give he them does, a, he does he does give them an ability to play a certain way yeah and he's not just in the team for his goal scoring ability as well i i thought he was very impressive against united uh, the, 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 they've had same maximin has been very impressive i thought he has a Seems lot of drive he seems to be ha- he seems to be energized by the fact that he's playing at Newcastle, which is good. Well, yeah, whenever you see him pick up the ball, he just seems positive. He wants to move it forward, which isn't something that Newcastle have always had in the, in anywhere on the pitch in recent years. Of course, the Longstaff brothers are. That's an ex- I think that's a very exciting situation for any Newcastle fans to have two local lads in the team playing so well. And they've got a solid defense. The The problem was always this season going to be whether they could score goals because they can hold their own defensively. But what worries me is the games where they, they've had games where they seem to be very willing to get bullied. It was very much like that against us, against Liverpool. They were just willing to, there, there didn't seem to be a lot of fight in the way they were playing. And Yeah, there's certainly word on the, 
they weren't on the front foot even, I mean, especially after they scored. They took the lead and I mean, it was a cracking goal. But they weren't on the front foot from that point on. It was like, okay, now we're just going to try and delay the inevitable. And Even when they were behind. Even when yeah. they were behind, they didn't seem to... They weren't chasing the ball down. It, it was the same against Leicester. Mm. And that's what concerns me, that if you're going to, every single time you go behind, just resign to defeat, that's going to make the season difficult if you're entirely relying on grabbing 1-0 wins. Yeah. It'll be tough. They've got Chelsea at Stamford Bridge next weekend, so they'll have their work cut out straight out of the gate. Then Wolves, then West Ham. But as as many person has said, there are no easy games in the English Premier League. Well, that should just about do us. We've talked about pretty much all that we can talk about in the English Premier League. Liverpool, I checked again. They're still eight points clear on top of the table. <laughs> uh, hopefully, they'll be... At least that far ahead the next time we talk English Premier League. Hopefully that won't be too far away. Thanks to Declan Kennedy for speaking to us. Thanks. And we will catch you next time on It You Go That Saying. See you later.